Welcome to the fourth episode of our weekly L-Monitor webinar series on the Israel-Hamas war and its impact on the region. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of L-Monitor. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Israel, his third visit to the region since October 7th, discussing with Israel's leaders how to execute a humanitarian pause to allow aid to Gaza and more time for negotiations over the release of hostages, including Americans, held by Hamas. Hezbollah Secretary General Hassan Nasrallah spoke today his first major speech since the start of the conflict, and this is following an increase in crossfire across the Israel-Lebanon border and airstrikes by Israel inside Lebanon. In addition to Israel's airstrikes on the Gaza enclave, Israeli forces have advanced into Gaza and circling Gaza City as international calls for a ceasefire have increased and the death toll in Gaza now exceeds 9,000, mostly women and children. To discuss all of the latest, we have with us Al Monitor Senior News Editor Joyce Karam here in Washington, Al Monitor Palestine columnist Daoud Kutab in Amman, and Al Jazeera correspondent and El Monitor columnist Ali Hashem reporting from Lebanon. Please submit your questions via the Q&A function on Zoom. Uh, Ali, if you're there, uh, you just lost your picture. Let's start with you. Uh, I'm there. Let's... Yes, I'm there. I'm here. Okay, good, good, good. Uh, let's try to get your uh, video back if you can. Uh, it's just let's... electricity, so this is a problem I can't see right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, well, let's start. Uh, Nasrallah said today, and I'm just taking one of his quotes, we've entered this battle since the 8th of October. Our operations have been very impactful, but we're not going to be satisfied with that alone. How do you read that statement, especially from your view there on the Israel-Lebanon border, where escalation has picked up in the last few days? Well, Andrew, it's clear that Nasrallah... Uh... Is, is kind of hinting this war is a long war. At least this is what he is preparing for with his group. And that's why this speech to him was kind of an establishing the argument speech, whereas this is just the first speech in a series of speeches that he is going to give uh, during this war. So that's why he did not uh, exhaust himself in threatening, in uh, kind of uh, going directly into the point on certain issues. However, he drew his lines, red lines from inside Gaza to Lebanon, to the whole conflict, tried too much to go into a narrative. He, was, he, he, he took a lot of time in establishing a narrative. And he knew that he's going to be watched. Everyone's going to watch him. And that's why he was sending messages to different sites, to the Israelis, to the Americans, and at the same time, trying to set this narrative that he thought will have a lot of audience. Though not many people were really happy with the extended speech. It went for an hour. Because a lot of people, especially those who are fans of a war situation or an escalation situation or are looking for a revenge for Gaza, they thought Nasrallah is going to go and announce an all-out war. 
But this is not Nasrallah. I mean, yes, Nasrallah will do it in a different situation when Hamas is out of control, when Hamas is weak, when he is already, uh, you know, in a situation where he's desperate. But he still has a lot of papers. And that's why he said all options are on the table to him. And we've, we've been following Nasrallah over the past years. Nasrallah is very good in psychological warfare. And he knows that he's listened to by the Israelis. And there are a lot of, uh, let me say, hidden messages to the Israelis in his own speech. So I think he was trying to be rational as much as possible. He's trying also to soothe the concerns in Lebanon. Because in Lebanon, I mean, this is a very delicate issue. Lebanon is not a normal state. Lebanon is a bankrupt country. The people in Lebanon are going through economic hardships. So Nasrallah would want also to send some positive messages to the people that, well, guys, no, we're not going to this war all out. I mean, we are in the war, but still, things are not going to be as worse as many think. So for now, this is the, the first speech. We'll have another speech in a few days. On the 11th of November, there'll be another speech. So between two, and he said that. He said there'll be another speech. So, so between the, the 3rd of November and the 11th of November, I think Nasrallah is giving uh, the Israelis, the Americans, and whoever is influential in this conflict is giving them a time to try maybe contain this situation or else we might hear a different tone on the 11th of November. Okay, Joyce, let's, let's pick up on that. I mean, what did you take from Nasrallah's speech and what do you think it might tell us about the concerns in Washington and the region about escalation? Or did his speech, as, as Ali seems to be saying, at least for now, by setting some red lines, alleviate some of those concerns that about a wider regional war? Yeah, for sure, Andrew. Great to be with you. Hi, Ali. Hi, uh, hi Dawood. Uh, to me, the speech was uh, left a level of calculated ambiguity. Uh, that we are ready to escalate, but we are not escalating uh, yet. It's also a very uh, changed Hezbollah than uh, the one that fought the 2006 war. Uh, Nasrallah was clear in uh, signaling that now they have allied groups in Iraq uh, that have hit U.S. forces. He also mentioned uh, Yemen. Um, he mentioned the Houthis. All that sounds to me that this is a strengthened um, uh, Hezbollah, despite uh, I agree uh, with what Ali said that inside Lebanon, uh, there is an attempt uh, from Hezbollah, at least for now, to shield uh, Lebanon from another uh, 2006 uh, while leaving uh, the options open. Uh, it was interesting also when he mentioned uh, the hostages and uh, negotiations uh, on that, uh, while also distancing himself uh, from the October 7 um, attack. He, he said, uh, operationally, Hezbollah was not uh, involved. Uh, that's, again, uh, a tone to, to shield uh, Lebanon from um, uh, being drawn directly into conflict while leaning on uh, 
you know, other proxies that Hezbollah coordinates closely with, whether the Palestinians in South Lebanon or uh, the Iraqi uh, uh, militias uh, in, in uh, near U.S. bases or with the Houthis uh, in Yemen. Uh, these were uh, clear um, messages, and uh, we, we're hearing them also on the backdrop of uh, talks about a humanitarian pause that's linked directly to the issue of hostages. Whether we see that happen, whether we don't, it's it's it still uh, remains to be seen. Let's talk about another possible front in the Gaza war. And here I'm talking about the West Bank, uh, where both IDF raids and settler violence has escalated since October 7th. And indeed, it was escalating before October 7th. What is your assessment of the possibility of West Bank also opening up a new front for Israel in the current conflict? Well, even Nasrallah spoke about uh, the fact that uh, daily Palestinians are killed and that West Bank is part of the sectors or fronts in this conflict. Yes, the Israelis, by declaring a state of war, became much more trigger happy than even than before even though they were trigger happy before but the west bank has been uh, further divided with more checkpoints more restrictions on movement and of course almost no one is going into israel to work anymore and even into jerusalem it's very hard there is a, a, a very difficult situation because as you said uh, the settlers have been given i think something like fifty-seven thousand pieces of, of weapons and especially areas B and C where Israel has security control, but this security control also means that there is no Palestinian armed uh, security people and the settlers have their opportunity to carry out pogroms and they have in a number of times. Um, so the situation is very, very toxic, very, very dangerous. Most people are staying away from the roads and the highways, but again, we're having daily uh, cases of Palestinians being killed. Uh, Israel raided Jenin a few weeks ago. They raided Tulkarem refugee camp. So there's daily uh, incursions. And the Palestinian factions, uh, let's say the especially the Fatah faction, are in a in a in a bind because they want to show some kind of support to their brothers in Gaza and they want to show also Hamas that it's not only party that carries out uh, acts of uh, resistance, yet at the same time, they know that the Israelis are waiting for anybody to shoot at them because then they will demolish them because they have even newer uh, orders for engagement. And so situation is very, very dangerous. And, and most people are trying to stay home. Schools are trying to mostly be online rather than face to face because Parents are afraid of sending their children to school in the West Bank. And Jerusalem is biggest, probably hurt the most because of the way that it's been isolated from the West Bank. But also many Israelis are putting a kind of a, a patriotic or nationality test on every worker. They look at their phones. And if their phones have anything to do with Hamas, they fire them or turn them over to the police. So um, people are having a hard time making ends meet. Tourism has died completely and uh, life is quite difficult. Let me, let me come back to you. Uh, how do you see Nasrallah's speech, or how do you interpret Nasrallah's speech in reflecting Iran's posture in the conflict? Hezbollah is seen as a, a vital ally, proxy of Iran. 
a number of articles have implicated Iran and even the planning for the the attack, despite what Nasrallah said today. How do you see the Iranian posture and what do you see as Iran's next move? Well, in fact, Iran is distancing itself when it comes to direct conflict. But it's playing the role of the backer, the, let me say, a regional superpower. So if it's a, a struggle or a fight between Israel and Hamas, Iran now sees itself matching more with the U.S. I mean, as Israel is a, is a small sister of the U.S., the way the Iranians think. And Hamas is, you know, Iran's, uh, let's say, ally, small ally, small sister, the same situation. So they don't want to be part of this. They're, they have this distance. It, even with Hezbollah talking, and, and Joyce said, said something interesting, Hezbollah uh, kind of describing how the Iraqi and the Yemeni factions or militias are reacting as if even Hezbollah is the big brother here. So, so it's Iran, the parent, Hezbollah, the big brother, and then comes the other factions, whether in Iraq, whether in... It's a, it's really interesting how this hierarchy is, is working, and they are kind of developing it day after day. So yeah, Iran doesn't want to be part of this fight. It won't be. I mean, it doesn't really want to, to involve itself, but it wants to have all the gains and leverage possible because it sees itself after 45 years. Iran is today, um, it, it has a, a geographical leverage. It's playing with, it's, it's, it's something serious. It's playing with a real geographical leverage. So whenever one of Iran's Axis members is under pressure, it can help relieve this pressure through other, other factions. It can ask the Yemenis to launch missiles from Yemen to Israel, and that's 2,000 kilometers, for God's sake. It's, it's not a normal range. Or from Iraq to, to the Dead Sea, just today they announced that they, they launched. I mean, regardless of the fact these missiles are being intercepted or not, but this is part of, you know, this situation where you're trying to relieve pressure, adding more pressure on, on Israel from different sides. And, you know, pushing the enemy here, as from Iran's point, point of view, to invest more, to, to, to spend more, exhausting them in different ways. So it's not only about be having Hezbollah on, on Israel's border. It's not only having control of the Syrian side of the Golan. It's also being able to use militias in Iraq, to use the Houthis in Yemen, and to create a situation where everyone is really concerned. Here, Iran here is playing cards, and it's saying, well, yes, I can take this whole region into a serious conflict, and you'll have to pay for it. I won't pay anything. This is, this is the threat here. And maybe that's why from the beginning we, we, we were hearing voices coming from the West and maybe the United States, maybe in, in, in uh, President Biden's visit to, to Israel, it was, at least as we saw it, it was a, a visit for solidarity. But what we didn't hear that, maybe, 
was trying to rationalize the Israelis, especially when President Biden was say, saying, don't be filled with, with, with anger. Don't be like what we did in 2001 when after the 9-11. Uh, so let, let uh, Israel not be controlled by rage. This is all related to the fact that there was something dear to everyone, that if this situation gets out of control, then this whole area is going to be on fire. And no, and even if someone puts this area on fire, no one knows who can set it off, especially with, an, with another conflict already uh, in, in Ukraine and uh, you know with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Who wants to see a, a situation like this, a total war in the Middle East? I think that's the situation where Iran is, is trying to play and bargain and, you know, do this uh, uh, tits for tat. Ali, thank you. And I appreciate your time. I know you're going to have to drop off in, in a minute or so. Uh, but Joyce, let me pick up the conversation with, with you, as we mentioned, and you mentioned in your remarks earlier, uh, Secretary Blinken's in the region. You mentioned this strategic uh, humanitarian pause uh, that he's trying to get, not a ceasefire. How is the U.S. threading this needle in its policy? Uh, there are calls for a ceasefire increasingly, uh, both in the United States, including some prominent members of Congress, and around the world. But Biden has remained fully committed to the Israeli war effort, but is trying to negotiate a pause to allow humanitarian aid and more time for the hostages. Tell us a little about your view from Washington about how this is being managed by the administration. Uh, yes, of course, but I just want to add one thing to what Ali was saying on uh, on Iran. There are two dimensions uh, today to Iranian uh, role. As Ali uh, eloquently said, uh, Iran is fighting on multiple uh, Arab fronts without having to fight uh, directly. They've, they've enabled powerful proxies uh, around the region, and they've been able to use this as uh, leverage. But on the other hand, we're seeing uh, Iran more interested in having a seat uh, on the table when it comes to the uh, Palestinian-Israeli uh, conflict. Uh, I think uh, our friend Kim Khattas wrote a brilliant piece in The Atlantic uh, uh, to that effect, uh, that whereas in 1991, Iran uh, wanted but didn't get invited to the Madrid talks. Uh, this is a different uh, uh, situation uh, uh, we're seeing now. And if the carnage that we're seeing in, in Israel and Gaza, if that leads to a political process, uh, Tehran uh, wants an end uh, with that. We're seeing this in uh, its foreign minister, uh, uh, Lahiyan visits to uh, to. Turkey to Qatar, they're very much involved in the hostage uh, uh, talks. Um, I believe we reported today that he uh, had a phone conversation with uh, with Ismail Haniyeh uh, of the political uh, branch of uh, of Hamas. So these are the two dimensions where I see Iran uh, fitting in. Now on the other uh, question about the Biden administration, they're increasingly in a tougher position. Uh, pressure is growing uh, from Congress, and with the death toll in Gaza exceeding 9,000 people, uh, many are asking, uh, 
how enough is 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 enough? Uh, when is it when is it enough? Uh, the message that uh, Secretary Blinken is is carrying to to the Israeli government is, we can't go with uh, mass casualties for you to uh, as a, as a price for killing a Hamas uh, leader, as happened in uh, Jabalia camp. Uh, the problem they have is. The Israelis are not listening, Andrew. And uh, even for a short humanitarian pause, um, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu is not uh, ready for that. So can, um, can Blinken, can the administration produce a breakthrough on the hostages that would bring the Israelis closer to accepting a humanitarian pause, that would be the biggest test of his um, of his trip. Uh, we know he's going to uh, uh, to Jordan, to other regional uh, capitals to, to push this through. We know that uh, 74 of the 400 Americans uh, trapped in Gaza ha have been out, but a lot of work remains to be done. And with what you mentioned, uh, Senator Chris Murphy, Senator uh, Dick Durbin, uh, yesterday in in statements, one calling for a ceasefire and one uh, saying the strategy that Israel is going with is not actually fulfilling its goals. This is this is only going to increase the pressure on uh, on the White House. Unmute, uh, Andrew. Daoud, uh, we've got a question. Just following up on. Joyce's point right there about the regional perspective. Someone was asking, what are the what's the position of the Arab states? Are they doing enough? Are they supportive of a ceasefire? Have they been quiet? We also hear that quietly uh, many states are calling for the defeat of, of Hamas as well. Tell us how the Arab the Arab states broadly define well, manage. Sure. On on the one hand, the Arab peoples in all these countries, uh, like most young people or progressive people in most countries, are supporting the Palestinians and uh, demanding a ceasefire. But some of the Arab leaders have a, a political problem in the potential success of Hamas because it would have a re, re, it have reverberation in their own countries and would re-empower Islamic forces in their countries. And I think they're worried about that. In general, I would say Jordan has taken uh, the strongest public position on the Palestine issue for many reasons. Uh, and the population there here has been extremely protesting almost daily uh, in different places. Almost many of the uh, shops have been... Uh, the American shops, the McDonald's and others have basically closed down. And um, the Arab countries want quickly for this uh, picture to end. They don't want the 24-hour news coverage because it's really causing them problems. Bahrain has had to end its normalization, or it, it seems to end the normalization by closing down the uh, Israeli embassy in, uh, in Manama. Um, but Egypt has also the similar problems in that it's on the one hand bordering with Israel with Gaza, but they're unable to get things through. You know, there's no Israelis on the Gaza uh, Egypt borders, but the Israelis have scared and bombed at times the Egyptians, so they cannot bring in food unless the Israelis agree to it. 
which actually puts to a lie that Gaza is not occupied because by controlling all the borders, the siege is amazing. But uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, people, even Nasrallah in his speech said, you know, maybe the Arab countries cannot uh, agree to the second goal of Gaza winning or Hamas winning, but at least they should go for the first goal of ending the, the war and having ceasefire. I think in the end, uh, Arab leaders uh, are in a bind, and I don't think you're going to see much except uh, off-the-record pressure on America, but not really strong pressure to do what they can to end this conflict, because as long as it's on the, on the television screens, it's causing them problems. Joyce, a question for you regarding the role of Egypt obviously playing a, a, a vital role in the sensitive position because of the Rafah border crossing. Uh, tell us how you're seeing Egypt's role in the conflict. What are its challenges uh, in its dealing with the war? And what do you see as its preferred outcome? Uh, yes, I mean, Egypt, just by virtue of geography, plays over what's happening in Gaza. Primarily, it doesn't want an influx uh, of refugees. It's seen what happened in 1948 after uh, the Nakba, after uh, Israel's war of independence and the influx uh, of refugees who most ended up in Gaza, but were never, never returned. 67, 73. Uh, so that's very much on uh, Egypt's um, uh, Egypt's mind. At the same time, Egypt is trying to uh, to help in in uh, pledging this week that it will get seven thousand foreigners out of Gaza and it will uh, start uh, getting the wounded uh, out of Gaza. As the wood uh, as the wood mentioned, uh, there are issues there. How much Israel is allowing? out, uh, how much is uh, Egypt uh, allowing uh, allowing in uh, with the communications blackout? Andrew, we've been trying also to get in touch with some of our correspondents to get a clearer picture. Uh, but, you know, one of them was, again, cut for 48 hours. So it's, it's a very difficult situation where things uh, stand now is... Um, uh, the 74 Americans that, that got out and more foreigner, foreigners will hopefully come out. But as for the humanitarian aid coming through Rafah uh, into Gaza, it's been very much a drop in the bucket of what's, um, of what's needed. Uh, also, fuel has not uh, come in yet, which is, which is a big problem when we talk about hospitals that are running out of, um, uh, out of fuel. So Egypt is finding itself in a difficult position in trying to balance its own interests, but also trying uh, to, uh, to avoid uh, uh, greater humanitarian suffering inside uh, inside Gaza. There's a question about the role of the Palestinian Authority. You wrote an important article and featured in your newsletter, uh, Palestine newsletter for All Monitor this week. Is the What is the future of the Palestine Authority, Palestinian Authority, as a result of this conflict? And relatedly, what can we expect regarding the future of Hamas? We were talking yesterday about that both Salam Fayyad and Mohammed Dahlan, key figures, have envisioned some role for some 
Hamas political leaders in the post-PLO situation. Even Ehud Barak has mentioned that it'll be difficult to completely defeat Hamas. How do you see the future of the PA and the role of Hamas in Palestinian politics? Well, I said in my newsletter that October 7th was the worst thing and the best thing that happened to uh, the PA at the same time. It was the worst because it uh, it showed a faction that's able to shake up the, the situation to the degree that President Biden said, now we really must work hard on the two-state solution and we have to find solutions. Well, you know, all of a sudden you're interested in situation that you haven't been interested. So that's a slap in, in the face of, of the Fatah and the PLO. But on the other hand, since the Israelis in the world are so against Hamas, what's their alternative? They, they only have uh, Ahmoud Abbas and the PLO as an alternative. But that doesn't solve the problem because unless every single member of Hamas and the Hamas movement all surrender, which religious people would never do, you're not going to have Hamas ended. So as long as Hamas is in some type of power, some type of role, and the popularity that they have, a solution has to involve Hamas. We, whether we like it or not, whether we appreciate it or not, Hamas has to be involved. And that's why Salam Fayyad wrote his piece that the PLO should move quickly to widen and expand the Palestine National Council to include Hamas and Islamic Jihad. And in fact, Israelis, if they think about it, should insist on Hamas being within the PLO because they, they want to negotiate with the PLO without Hamas. The problem will come back again. So they need the Hamas involved. The PLO is not going to enter and control Gaza on the back of Israeli tanks against the will of Hamas. So there has to be some type of cooperation. Mahmoud Abbas has already said, I want to cooperate more with Hamas. Abu Mazen, Mahmoud Abbas can tomorrow expand the executive committee of the PLO, can create a, a, an emergency government, including people close to Hamas and, and uh, Islamic Jihad and others. And in that way, uh, it basically allows Hamas to be part of a solution rather than being part of the problem. There is no solution without Hamas. And I think Israel doesn't want Hamas, but I think they will have to bite the bullet and accept the way they accept Hezbollah in the governments of Lebanon. They have to accept that Hamas in one way or another has to be involved, whether directly or indirectly, in any new post-October 7th government running Gaza. International forces alone will not work because they will never enter unless Hamas agrees for them to enter. Hamas will not agree to international force to enter. The only force that they would agree to enter is a combined Fatah and uh, with the acquiescence of Hamas or Hamas being part of, of a new body. That's the only solution that can solve the post-October 7th uh, governance of Gaza. Joyce, there's a question from one of our viewers about China. You write the El Monitor uh, China Middle East newsletter. How is China viewing the situation in the region? Are they winners or losers in the conflict? Uh, no, for sure. And uh, this is something we've covered in Al Monitor's newsletter uh, in the last uh, two weeks. For China, uh, overall, uh, the Gaza war is not 
negative. They're uh, a force of uh, stability when it comes to Israeli-Palestinian relations. They were ready to invite uh, Netanyahu in October. They've received Mahmoud Abbas. They were looking for a role to mediate in this conflict. And then October 7. So where do they go? Uh, from here, uh, they've drawn a line that's very different uh, from uh, the United States, and that's helping them in the Arab street and with a uh, little bit slightly with Gulf countries. So in a sense, uh, China has called for a ceasefire, an immediate uh, ceasefire from very early on. That's something that uh, the United States has not called for yet. Second, we're seeing them in the uh, Security Council, Andrew, where they're being more active with a key player, the only Arab player now on the Security Council, which is the United Arab Emirates. They called for an emergency session uh, this Monday, a joint China-UAE uh, session. Uh, they've also uh, been opposed to uh, two US vetoes, same as uh, the, U the UAE in, in, in calling for a ceasefire. So uh, so where, where China sits in this is it's trying to exploit a, a situation and draw itself closer to the Arab public in a manner that the US uh, hasn't. There's even criticism we're reading in NBC today that maybe the White House went um, too far in in its uh, in its embrace of uh, uh, Bibi Netanyahu. So it remains to be seen how all this shapes up, how all this ends, and who uh, brokers uh, the settlement. Of course, the U.S. is the historic mediator uh, uh, in this. Uh, but as uh, as you've all mentioned, uh, you know, just moments ago that. The eyes and the in the Arab uh, street and the Arab public, the Arab governments. We have uh, Saudi Defense Minister uh, Khalid bin Salman in town. Uh, are what can the U.S. broker? How will they end this? Can they end it? And if they don't, I think this would leave a weakened uh, U.S. leverage across the region, and uh, ultimately, uh, that could play in uh, Beijing's hands in the Middle East. Picking up on that, another question about the post-war situation. Obviously, Gaza had its many challenges even before the conflict. The reconstruction, rebuilding of Gaza will be so difficult. Do you see the key Arab states in the region, Gulf states, being committed to that reconstruction? And how do you envision that post-war scenario? Uh, not sure. I'll I'll take this then. Just quickly revert to uh, to Dawood. I think for the Arab countries. So let's be clear. There is no love uh, lost to Hamas here. This is not a group that has uh, support or uh, affinity in the Gulf and in major Gulf countries uh, uh, today. Maybe it did in the eighties. Uh, uh, early 90s, but not uh, not now. So there has to be a clear roadmap of uh, what lies ahead. Uh, to Dawood's point, uh, where does the new PLO, 
uh, if that comes across, uh, you know, false. Where does uh, uh, Mahmoud Abbas' uh, legacy and his leadership, where is it uh, at this moment? And what happens also, a key question to, I see the Woods point on Hamas and Islamic Jihad perhaps being part of uh, the PLO, but the PLO itself was not internationally recognized until it amended its charter. Uh, so things have to happen uh, on that front with, with Hamas before we get to that point. Uh, the day after talks also involved that we're hearing uh, from Secretary Blinken and some Europeans, a peace force. Which peace force? Who is going to, to this area? So I think there is still many unanswered questions in, uh, in, in, in what we're seeing uh, in Gaza, but there has to be restructuring of the political uh, and economic status quo in, in Gaza uh, for Gulf aid or others to uh, to flow in. That would, I don't know. Yeah, oh, please. I think that um, Ismail Haniyeh made a statement a few days ago saying that Hamas agrees to the two-state solution with East yeah. Jerusalem. Uh, so he actually did not use two-state. He said he a Palestinian said, state. He said, he, yeah, we support a Palestinian state, which, which is, a you know, far region. better than me. This is, yeah, yeah, I mean, you don't have to say what the other state is, but basically he's talking about the Palestinian state, which is uh, something that Hamas has been hinting about. Now, would they, I mean, would they agree to nail down their position uh, after this? It's not clear, but, you know, there are lots of options. It's not, it doesn't necessarily... Hamas doesn't have to be in the PLO in the name of Ismail Haniyeh and uh, you know their top. They can they can nominate people close to them who uh, would be acceptable to them and to the inter international community. I don't think that's a problem. The question is if they are interested and they've been interested for a long time in being involved. It's been Mahmoud Abbas who's been slow in accepting them. I think now he has no choice but to accept them. And I think the Egyptians and others are going to nudge him to be more open to some of the Islamists to, that basically Hamas and Qatar would agree to that would join the PLO in the kind of an emergency government. And that could begin a process. Um, so yes, I think there are solutions that can be found to allow um, the uh, fighters, if they still there in, in Gaza after the end of this war, not to attack because if there is a peace force and that the local fighters don't agree to no peace force is going to go to gaza no one is going to go to gaza that israel couldn't conquer gaza you know you think anybody would would be stupid enough to go to gaza they have to have the agreement of the local leadership a local resistance movement and that only can comes if the political side is involved in some kind of a political process. And there has to be clear uh, horizon. There has to be a clear political horizon that is uh, where things are moving. And I think uh, the statement of Ismail Haniyeh is giving that indication that we are open. Come and talk to us. We will, you know, we're open. I don't think they gave away everything, but there seems to, uh, they seem to be giving the hints that they might be open to a discussion. We've run over time, uh, which which has been great uh, because we've had a fantastic uh, conversation today with our guests. 
Daoud Kutab, Al Monitor Palestine columnist, thank you from Amman. Joyce Karam, Al Monitor Senior News Editor, thank you from Washington, D.C. Ali Hashim, who had to break off earlier. Uh, appreciate his contribution as well. And thank you all for tuning in. We'll have another episode of our Israel Hamas webinar coverage next week. In the meantime, you can follow Joyce Daoud Ali uh, at almonitor.com. Thank you. Thank you.